From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Joining us now, Dr. Dudley. He writes for Bloomberg Opinion. Of course, all of his work at the New York Fed in definitive market economics with uh, Bill McKelvey, Ed McKelvey years ago at Goldman Sachs. Bill Dudley, thank you for this important essay. On the calculus of diminishing returns, how efficacious is a lift in capital requirements of our big fancy banks? I think the question is, what problem are you trying to solve? Was the problem that we saw in the spring lack of capital among big money center banks, or is it a problem with supervision, problem with bad accounting, problem with uh, bank management? Uh, I think the problem is not that the big banks didn't have enough capital. If you remember, money was was running towards the big banks during the uh, turmoil that we saw in March, not away from the big banks. And none of the bank, none of the big banks got into any, any great difficulty mm-hmm. in the United States. The problem with raising capital requirements over and over again is you're making U.S. banks less competitive, and that's going to push activity out into the unregulated non-banking sector. That, the question that, that, that creates is, are you actually making the financial system safer, or are you actually making it more unstable? Should we raise the capital requirements of entrepreneurial upstart banks with a strategic gimmick to build growth? Well, I think we certainly want to be very close, uh, pay close attention to those banks that are uh, using novel business models. And, and I think as the Fed itself, itself admitted that we need better supervision, the problems of Silicon Valley Bank were identified in a relatively timely way, but then the supervisors didn't force the banks to make the changes necessary to prevent its uh, demise. Uh, so I think that, that better supervision, uh, more diverse stress testing, uh, better uh, rules on uh, you know interest rate risk taking uh, could could go a long way to avoid these kind of problems. I'm not sure raising the capital requirements of the biggest money center banks by 15 to 20 percent is the answer here. Bill, you talk about in your column the importance to recognize non-banking uh, institutions as competitors, and that you really just increase their share by restricting the lending capacity of big banks. Should regulators be basically? going down to the lowest common denominator of less regulated non-banks, or should they put more of an eye toward non-banks and regulate more closely some of those activities? I think they should be focusing on what's the best solution for resiliency of the overall financial system, banks and non-banks. Obviously, if you increase the requirements a lot on banks, you're just going to have a bigger non-bank regime. And the question is, does that make you safer or does that make you more vulnerable? So I think there needs to be balance here. Also, I think that the real question here is what's the what was the problem and what's the right solution to solve the problem? It's not clear that raising capital requirements on large money center banks solves the problems that we saw in March of this year. Can we say that the banking crisis uh, is over to the extent that it ever happened and that going forward, this is not going to be some sort of bigger financial risk that could torpedo the Goldilocks scenario, at least for the moment? You never know, but I, I think that so far the knock-on effects of what happened in March are pretty modest. I think that's because it 
really was concentrated in a few banks, and it was all happening in plain sight. People knew exactly why these banks were getting into difficulty. They could see their interest rate risk exposure. They could see what's happening to their uh, capital on a mark-to-market basis. So this is not like the great financial crisis where everything was happening in the shadows. Uh, people lost confidence in their counterparties. So I think so far, at least, it looks like this is a pretty modest uh, knockout effect to the real economy. So if that's not if that's the case, and that isn't necessarily a headwind going forward, do you lean into this idea uh, that maybe the Fed should be done and that we are looking at a scenario where they have the opportunity to just wait and take a look at the data on a longer and longer term basis to make any decisions? I have no, dis- I have no quarrel with the Fed uh, waiting to get more information. I mean, they, you know, they, they're pretty confident that monetary policy is at a restrictive level. If that's the case, it should slow the economy down. As the economy slows, we should have more slack in the labor market, and that should put so, take away some of the upper pressure on wages and bring inflation down. I think the key question is, how restrictive is monetary policy today? It's possible that monetary policy is not quite as restrictive as the Fed thinks. And if they find that out over time, then they can obviously do more or keep rates higher for longer. Bill, I want to finish there. You wrote about this earlier in the summer. I don't think it was picked up on nearly enough. I've been talking about it as much as I can. This quote from your column that read as follows, and I had the quote ready for you, Bill. There's considerable evidence that lags have shortened, meaning that the economy has already felt nearly all of the impact of the Fed's actions. Bill, talk to me about that evidence. Where do you see that evidence currently? I think the most obvious piece of evidence is what's happening in the housing sector. The housing sector you know, obviously was hurt a lot by the backup in mortgage rates from 3% to 7%. But uh, recently, the housing market looks like it's bombed out and uh, isn't having any further uh, weakness because of the rise in rates. The other thing that's important to note here is monetary policy works faster than it used to because the Fed uses forward guidance to guide the market, not where it is today, but where it's headed. So financial conditions, most of the tightening in financial conditions that we've seen over the last couple of years happened last year, not this year. I remember, Bill, a conference that you and I did together, together with Mohammed Al-Aryan in the summer of 2021. I think it was early summer, around June time. And you were both talking about how inflation may well be stickier than people think. And I remember you, Bill, threw out the number that maybe rates have to go to 5%. 5% back then sounded absurd. We're through 5 We're through 5 and we've gone right the way through five. Bill, what are you thinking about now? Best case on where you think sufficiently restrictive might be? I, I think that it's more likely that they hold rates here or, or maybe one more rate hike as opposed to go ever higher. I think where the market may be a little bit off, off base is to think that the Fed's going to ease a lot in 2024. I think the, the last mile in terms of getting inflation down, I think it's going to turn out to be pretty difficult. And so I think that means that Fed's going to take keep rates higher for longer than people think. I think that's one of the things that uh, is feeding into the bond market and why bond yields have moved higher. Bill Dudley, thank you, sir. Former New York Fed president and Bloomberg opinion columnist. Some fascinating insight there. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.